Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 533-42 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gambling helpline ma.org or call eight hundred three two seven fifty fifty four twenty four seven support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight hope. NY or text Hope NY in New York. And welcome back in. That's Jimmy Stein. I'm Clint Lamb, both with Bama Online. And we're here to react to Alabama's 34 20 victory over the Tennessee Vols on Saturday. Jimmy, quite an interesting game. I mean, with the way things started, uh, you know, Tennessee goes down the field and they score. Alabama goes three and out on offense. you know, you quickly realize, okay, it looks like it's going to be one of those days. And Alabama's really had trouble getting fast starts this season. But at the same time, what we have seen is them get things together at some point. Sometimes it's the second quarter, but mostly it's been a second-half effort, uh, not always on both sides of the football happening at the same time, which we'll talk about. But uh, you, what you saw on Saturday was a, what, 27 to nothing uh, second-half uh, run for Alabama. That's pretty impressive. Uh, this really, it was one of the best halves of football that Alabama has played so far this year, but the first half included one of the worst halves of football that they've played. So very Jekyll and Hyde, very interesting dynamic to how this game kind of played out. What were your reactions based off of what we saw? Well, a ton of reactions because that was a that there, that was sensory overload. The whole day was sensory overload uh, between what was going on the field, what was going on in the stands. There was a, a tremendous environment. Coach Saban specifically asked for one, and he got it. Uh, but on the field, you know, it was it was a confidence thing to me. I mean, Alabama seemed to get behind the eight ball early and uh, and just could not get back in front of the sticks. I mean, everything seemed to kind of go wrong. Uh, they did not play well at all. Uh, on offense or defense. I know everyone is stuck on offense. That's all fan. most fans want to talk about offense most of the time. I get that. But 
even defensively, it was a mess. Um, we gave up 275 yards in the first half. That is absolutely just as much as they gave up in each half a year ago in the defensive debacle up in Knoxville. So really the first half was a continuation of what had happened in Knoxville. It was a third half of that kind of performance. And then, of course, offensively, they couldn't really get anything going. They couldn't run the ball at all. I think 16 yards rushing in the first half. Just abysmal, putting it all on, on Milrow, who was not sharp. Uh, we've seen him better. Uh, no real big plays. The sack fumble. Uh, guy, it was just a mess. And then all it took, Clint, was the two snaps. I, I'm 100% convinced. If Alabama had gone three and out on that first first drive of the, of the second half, Clint, I'm I'm convinced that that second half might have looked like the first half, but they didn't. The first snap, J, Jace McClellan ran, I think, over 30 yards uh, on a rush play, and then and then Milrow hit Bond for the home run, and and then it was off to the races. Then miraculously, the defense, w- which I think made a big halftime adjustment that I look forward into going over. In my rewatch thread, I'll do later uh, all week on BOL. But uh, I, I look forward to kind of looking at those second half adjustments Alabama made. I think they, they did a couple things in the box to change things up. But regardless, here's where, where, where my jumping off point is, Clint, is this. It was the first time all year in that second half I really felt like Alabama was one of the very best teams in college football. Uh, I think Alabama's been good in spots. And they do some things really well some of the time. But for 30 minutes, I felt like, okay, that is one of the best teams in the country. That is a Nick Saban playoff team. Uh, now, the question is, can Alabama keep that up uh, over, you know, when it will be required going forward? Yeah, that is the number one question because there's been so many inconsistencies. And you think they start to figure some things out and then they regress. But here is some areas where I feel like they have figured some things out. Number one, the play calling. I feel like that Tommy Reese has a better feel for how to operate this offense and how he wants to design this offense to to play around both the strengths and the weaknesses of Jalen Milrow to start, but also the offensive line. You've got playmakers at receivers. You've got a playmaker at tight end and Amari Nyblack. And so, you know, it's it's been an adjustment period. But I think a lot of what we had wanted to see out of this offense to help, you know, on Thursday night, Todd, last week, we kind of got into the conversation, the lack of screens, the lack of design quarterback runs. You weren't seeing many jets. Uh, We saw all of that on Saturday. And I know that a lot of fans, what will happen is, is you'll see the success in the second half and think Tommy Reese changed a bunch of stuff. And now that's where it started to click. He was doing a lot of different things in the first half, too. It was clear. The execution was not there. And so the offense isn't having the level of success that it needs to, but it wasn't really necessarily, even though there's some situational things that I still think Tommy Reese can get corrected uh, as far as the you know what he's calling in certain situations, I thought from adding variety and trying different things, I mean, from the very first uh, snap of the game last week and I'm going to be posting this at some point I plan to do it last week but I decided to give it a few more games before I do but um, the first snap against MTSU it was a quick screen very well designed to Isaiah Bond uh, and it went for a decent gain I think seven or eight yards on first down from that point forward in every other game this season the first snap of the game has been some variation of the same run play 
an inside run that, granted, I, I understand it to a degree because it was pretty successful a lot of the times early on in the season against Texas. It was successful. Uh, USF, the first half of the game, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, I want to say they had some success on first down. But, you know, Arkansas, Texas A&M did not yield as much success. Uh, and so you were hoping for some more variety on the opening play. You don't want the defense to know essentially what's coming. Well, you saw play action pass on Saturday against Tennessee on first down. On second down, you saw a design quarterback run. That's something that we have been looking for. Did it have a lot of success? No. Alabama's offense ends up going three and out. They run the ball on third and you know relatively short, I think three yards. But here's the thing about that, too, because a lot of fans are wondering why you're running it um, in some of these situations in third and mediums. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that you want to keep defenses honest. You want... Uh, you don't want them to be able to tee off on your passing game, even if it's an obvious passing situation. When they know that the threat is there for you to run the football, they have to respect that. So when you're already at a disadvantage because your offense isn't really built for those third and longs or third and medium, you know, longer mediums, uh, you can at least kind of try to keep the defense honest and what and how they're playing you in those situations, so they can't tee off on it. Now it's you're at an even bigger disadvantage. So from Tommy Reese's perspective. Jimmy, I thought he played pretty or called a pretty good game. There were new things. I mean, there were new things. The, uh, I loved the wide receiver sweep, sort of the jet sweep, the little touch pass to Kendrick Law. Uh, I loved it. Um, and I think, you know, the whole thing, I think it goes back to what me and you were saying all the way back to week three when Nick Saban named Jalen Milrow the starter. I really think due to circumstance, meaning we're not 100% sure the quarterback's going to be. We're pretty sure, but we're not 100% sure. You couldn't really build the whole offense around Jalen Milrow until week three. And he, at that point, he had a base. He understood the base of the offense. Week four. There, there was a basis he could go off of. But it really started back in week three. And I think that's where we've seen the improvement, Clint. I mean, uh, obviously, Middle Tennessee, I mean, what can you tell, right? You just overwhelm them with talent. But – Texas, you know, it wasn't great. In week three, when we played the backup quarterbacks, that wasn't good at all. But starting week week four, week four, the uh, the fourth week of the season, that's when it's all right. This is going to be the Jalen Milrow offense. And the idea is that you start with the base and you build out from there because you don't want to overload the young quarterback. And I think Saturday was one more, one more step towards completing the Jalen Milrow playbook, you know, and, and that's kind of what we saw. We saw additional wrinkles, additional things, more quarterback design runs. But uh, that that's really what I thought Saturday was, sort of the culmination of building uh, the Milrow plan. And uh, it, it actually looks better all the time. Yeah, it, it it's constantly evolving. And it's interesting because you had the rough second half against Arkansas. And then you had the rough first half against Tennessee. So it was really, you know, the last four quarters of football that Alabama had played when it was halftime on Saturday was rough. And so you begin to wonder, is this offense regressing? Like, are they moving in the wrong direction? Because that's a pretty, you know, it's still not a large sample size, but you're starting to stack quarters where they can't get anything going. And there's some, you know, dysfunction as far as, you know, left tackle still struggling a little bit, even though I think one of those early sacks on Caden Proctor Felt like Jalen Milrow might have had a little bit of room to step up in the pocket, and and which would have really helped Proctor in that moment. But at the same time, it's still on Proctor because he did technically get beat. 
there were some times where, you know, Jalen Milrow, there was one where he ended up escaping out. I think it was the second or third drive, uh, escaping out to the right and throwing the football away, which is what you want to see. But on that particular play as well, he goes to step up in the pocket. He sees the linebacker who is spying him, who's more to the right side of the screen as you're watching it, which would be the left side of the field from his perspective. But it felt like that Milrow could have stepped up and gone to the left side. Um, you know, and there was wide open grass where he could have picked up a huge chunk of yardage, and he instead decided he sees that spying linebacker and he very quickly tries to bounce it back outside, and he does get outside, but by that point, your blockers are all trying to keep guys out there. Now you're getting free run at the quarterback, and there's two or three guys trying to track him down, and he has to throw the football away. So there was just, you know, you see some of that stuff, and it's like the instincts as a runner and just seeing that wide-open grass there on the left side, um, you know, you would hope that he would see that and be able to take advantage, and, and you start to worry about some of these things, and then everything starts to click, and you're 100% right. Momentum is a very big thing. Uh, it's a very strong thing, and in this particular game, the first drive of the second half was huge. And I don't think we talk enough about how big the coin toss has been in some of these football games because if they don't win the coin toss and they don't defer, they don't get that opportunity because it was the same thing against Ole Miss. They come out on that first drive of the second half, and they establish we're going to be a different team in this half compared to the first. And that really helped compound things and get things going. And I also think there's something to be said. If you can start to get things right, uh, it's, if, if you're Alabama, to start off a game to kind of set the tone for the game, you want your defense to be out there uh, first rather than your offense. And so I think in some of these big games, Ole Miss and Tennessee in particular, uh, Coyne Toss ended up playing a pretty big factor. I almost wrote my Sunday column that I'm due now on BOL. I almost wrote – that was my second choice. I almost wrote the whole column on the coin flip because I, I couldn't agree more. I, I don't think, because you're right about Ole Miss. You are right. But even after Ole Miss, I, I wasn't so um, dwelling on it. But I dwelled on it when, when the game was over. I'm like, getting the ball first to start the second half and scoring changed the whole game. That we, We've already uh, both talked about it. I mean, it, it did. that's what changed the game. It was getting the ball first in the second half and not just scoring, but scoring what I would call easily. I mean, a big run play that just absolutely worked. And then, then the bomb. And, yeah, there was a bust. But, you know, taking advantage of busts is big. Not everybody takes advantage of busts. There's busts all the time in college football, Clint. I don't think fans understand how often we bust, but the other team didn't take advantage or how often the other team busts and we don't take advantage. That's that's the beauty of college football is the, the how mistake-prone and error-prone these younger players are. But, uh, yeah, they, they busted. And uh, and Milrow saw the field. I know that a lot of complaints are, you know, that kid, he doesn't see the field. Well, he does sometimes. <laughs> he saw he saw Bond there. Uh, and, and I doubt I, I have to go back and rewatch it three or four times. I'm not sure Bond was his primary read there. But uh, but but he saw Bond and, and made the play even more importantly. So it set the tone for what was, like I said, the best half of football uh, that Alabama's played this year. I think it might be the best half of football they've played since the 2021 SEC championship game, frankly. I mean, I, I don't know that Alabama played that well in a half of football at any point in 2022, maybe against Kansas State in the Sugar Bowl when they finally had Bryce uh, healthy. But, boy, uh, they look like a playoff team. And, again, I'm not saying 
hey, I'm changing my mind. I'm, I'm now predicting Alabama makes the playoff. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying they look like a playoff team on Saturday. Right, and that's kind of where you have to feel encouraged because, as I said to start this whole thing off, there are things that are I, I believe are here to stay. The play calling, it's like some of the things that you had not been doing, and that could have been due to quarterback health or a, a number of other factors that could have been involved to prevent some of these things from being run. But you saw it, and it was successful. And now you've hit the bye week where a lot of this stuff, you can continue to implement it in your offense, get guys more comfortable doing it, add some more wrinkles, add some more variation, and you should be able to build, build off of that. And so I, I see no reason. Some people, I, I was asked uh, after the game if I felt like this was they were going to keep this stuff up or is Tommy Reese going to regress. He's not going to call the perfect play in every situation. There's going to be times where you say, what are you thinking? Uh, even Josh Heupel, who's considered an offensive uh, genius and very innovative guy who gave Alabama's defenses, you know, defense fits last year. Uh, you know, he, that fourth down call, uh, one of the two was abysmal. I mean, it was just, I don't know what you're doing there based off of what Alabama had struggled with up to that point in the game. It, it felt like you played right in Alabama's hand and it was a critical moment in the football game. and. I don't feel like, you know, maybe Hypo was trying to catch him off guard by doing something that he didn't think that they would expect. I don't know. But even got, you know, Lane Kiffin in that old miss game a few weeks ago, he got into a, a real bad rhythm in the second half. So to think that Tommy Reese is going to be this perfect play caller on every snap or every game or every half or every quarter moving forward, you just need to accept the fact it'll be it'll be a lot easier on you if you accept the fact that, you know, that a rough quarter or a rough series or whatever it ends up being, you can say, okay, just like we do with Jalen Milrow or anybody else, man, he had a rough series there. Hey, Tommy Reese was not in his bag on that one. Uh, don't agree with that. But to say, oh, man, this is going to be continue to be a huge problem, I, 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 th I think Reese is better than we give him credit for. I think he's been kind of handcuffed. We thought him coming over from Notre Dame to Alabama that he would have access to so much more as far as the receivers and what you can do with them and all these different things, you're still going to have some good tight ends. Your offensive line's big. It's talented. Uh, you should have some options at quarterback. You're going to have one of the best defenses in the country to compliment you. You're going to have one of the best running back rooms in the country. And really, to start the year, he was more handcuffed in Tuscaloosa than at any point that I can, outside of when Tyler Buckner first went down last year, the adjustment, uh, I feel like that was pretty tough to work around. But for for Tommy Reese, it's just it's been an adjustment period. And so I, I don't think the criticism to the degree that is it has been, and I understand that we do this. We did it with Pete Golding, we did it with Bill O'Brien. We it's a coordinator thing. It's just easy to blame those guys. And you know, as far as Pete Golding to Kevin Still, that's pretty evident that that was a problem. Uh Bill O'Brien also was a problem too. Tommy Reese can be a problem, but I just don't think it's as much of an issue as fans make it out to be sometimes. Uh, but I will say for Jalen Milrow, um, you know, he's getting better and he still makes some mistakes. Everybody defensively saw mistakes made coaching staff. You saw mistakes made offensive, uh, line, you know, receivers, uh, everybody's making mistakes out there, but he's doing some things and to say he's not capable of going through, you know, seeing the field is one criticism that he gets often. He sees the field sometimes. He didn't see it enough sometimes, but he's moving in the right direction in that area, and he's proven that he's capable of seeing the field. 
He just needs to do it with a little bit more consistency. That should come. I saw him on at least two occasions, and I'm still working back through the the all 22, but I saw at least on two occasions live where he clearly went through his progressions. He went one, he went two, and he went three. And then he delivered a strike to the receiver, um, and it was a successful play. So he's capable of doing it. He just needs to do it with more consistency. It's taken a while. I'm no fans by this point in the year. They want him to be perfect. He's not going to be. Uh, these were major issues, but they are improving. So I, overall, with the offense and the way things looked in the second half, there I, I wouldn't expect that half of football to be Alabama's brand offensively now until the end of the season. There's going to be some hiccups, but it was certainly encouraging, Jimmy. You know, I'm glad you brought up that uh, that play you're talking about going through the progressions. Uh, you know, I do a rewatch thread almost every week. There's been a time or two it had to happen, but uh, – in the rewatch thread, I would say there's at least two or three times every week uh, because it's sarcastic on my point. I probably shouldn't write in a sarcastic tone. <laughs> but every now and then I write in the rewatch thread. And on this play, Jalen Milrow does something that I'm told repeatedly on the board he cannot do, yet he did it right here on this play. And that is the going through the progressions. He he doesn't do it all the time. It's a new thing. It's, it's, a, it's not a skill that one is just automatically born with. Uh, it's just something that you, it's a skill that's developed over time, but uh, he's not a one read quarterback. Uh, I, I think maybe that was something that happened when he was a freshman, uh, which is pretty common, but there's a lot of things that people complain about that, that Jalen actually does do and, and does all right. Uh, you know, I, I think in breaking down just his performance, Clint, in terms of where he is as a player, uh, because we do have a lot of fans that get frustrated with his performance. I sort of look at it like this. This isn't exactly percentage breakdown that the analytics people would have for you. But I think roughly when you look at what doesn't go well for for Jalen and Alabama's offense, I think literally around 50% of it is due to inexperience. Uh, This past Saturday was just his, uh, I think it was his eighth start, no, seventh start in college football. Uh, It was Alabama's eighth game, uh, but he missed a game. so it was actually his seventh start uh, this season. And of course, the one start last year. So I guess that's eight eight starts total now. Uh, that's not, not an experienced player. We've gone over it all on the on the roundtable a few times in terms of pass attempts. He is easily the least experienced starting quarterback in the SEC, even when other other teams have lost their initial starter and they replaced him with a backup. It was still someone that had more experience in SEC football than Jalen Milrow has. So I think 50% or roughly of errors that you see Milrow make or poor plays is directly related to his experience. I also think about roughly 25% of mistakes and errors he makes. It could be that this kid's going to be fighting that through a lot of the early parts of his whole college career. Some college quarterbacks, uh, it takes a little while to shed a lot of bad habits and change how you do things, particularly a kid who famously had never really been coached by a quarterback coach that played quarterback until he got to Alabama, you know, and and was coached by Bill O'Brien, now Tommy Reese. Um, So I think 25% is probably, for instance, if Milrow is the starter again next year at Alabama, which is to be determined, but if he is, I think about 25% of what you see is just kind of what you're going to see, you know, 
And then the other 25%, Clint, I think come from what I would say are other Alabama deficiencies that, hey, you could stick Bryce Young back there. You could stick Aaron Rodgers back there. And we're still going to have some issues because Alabama doesn't have a great offensive line. Alabama doesn't have Josh Jacobs or Mark Ingram or Derrick Henry at running back. Alabama doesn't have a wide receiver one like they had for so many years with uh, Smitty and that group, and then followed by J-Mo and Metch. Uh, I, I think Alabama is just a little deficient for Alabama in some areas, and that's roughly what I see in terms of like, hey, why, why is the offense ninth or tenth in the SEC? Why, why didn't it go great for Jalen all the time? Yeah, I, I think it's roughly 50% lack of experience, 25% of I think that's who the kid is, and 25% of Alabama deficiencies. doesn't matter who the quarterback is. Well, one thing that we need to be talking about more, and I brought this up on the message board, um, because I agree with what you said, by the way, uh, or most of what you said, enough to make it m more general. Um, but one thing I don't think we're talking about enough is how Alabama overcame essentially a two-touchdown deficit at halftime because that is a scenario that I have talked about many times against Ole Miss. Uh, I think Ole Miss was up three, if I wasn't mistaken. Um, and they were about to go out there for a drive, and I made the tweet, this is a huge drive for Alabama's defense because I don't think Alabama's offense is designed if they go down double-digit points to, to you know, they're not going to be comfortable in that scenario where you need multiple scores to get back into the football game. That happened against Tennessee. They were down 13 points, so you needed two touchdowns to take a lead, and not only did Alabama overcome, but they looked comfortable in that situation that does not mean that from now until the end of the year every time they're down or if they're down double digits they're going to be super comfortable you know the if they find themselves down double digits in, in jordan Hare stadium for whatever reason in a hostile environment that's a different scenario but i will say through this experience and the fact that you've now found yourself in that situation against a good defense too you know the reason it really wasn't set up old miss at least doesn't have a great defense Tennessee does. And so when you're down, you know, essentially two touchdowns with the offensive struggles that you've had on top of playing a good defense, the one thing they had going for them was the fact that it was in Bryant Denny Stadium. Uh, otherwise, it would have been the perfect storm against them had it been on the road in Neyland Stadium. But they were able to weather that storm. They were able to get things back on track, and you saw complimentary football. And that is something that we have not seen enough from this Alabama team or Alabama teams in recent years, you know, against Texas, the the offense finally gets some things going in the third quarter. What does the defense do? Every time the offense scores points, the defense immediately allows Texas to go down the field and score its own points, touchdowns, you know, mostly. And so you just couldn't get the offense and the defense on the same page at the same time. And on Saturday, you finally did, and it made a significant difference as far as not only taking momentum in the football game, but also, uh, you know, building off of that, like if Milrow and them score on two plays and the defense allows Tennessee to go down the field and score and match it, that's taking away all momentum. So your offense has a very hard time stacking, you know, good drives. But the defense, not only, not only did uh, the offense score points, but the defense helped put them in another good situation and they were able to take advantage. And now you're rolling. Now you're back in the football game. Defense, defensively, Defensively, I think they 
they sort of grew up to me because you're exactly right. I mean, that, that'd been a big issue. It was a huge issue in the Tennessee and LSU losses last year. You know, the two losses last year was the defense not making a stop after the offense gets you back in the game, uh, particularly in Baton Rouge, but also in Knoxville it happened. And then it happened again uh, against Texas. And it's fair at that point as an Alabama fan to say, hey, are, are we ever going to get it back? Is this ever going to be a defense that did what it's done for most of the Saban era? But now, but we saw signs, and then Saturday we saw emphatically, uh, wow, they, they are back to a degree. Look up. Most of the season, there, there's been very few quarters where the defense hadn't played great. Uh, the, the fourth quarter against Texas was really terrible. Uh, second half against Arkansas, pretty iffy. I hate saying giving up 15 and a half is disgraceful. It only is per previous Alabama standards. Uh, but you did give up 15 to Arkansas and a half, and Mississippi State gave up three in 60 minutes. And we, we know that they're not exactly elite defensively. So there has been stretches where the defense just wasn't that good. But it's been small stretches, Clint. I, for the vast majority, I think I saw this this year. Heck, you might have put it up. I think it was a tweet or, or maybe you put it up. Uh, if you went up and counted over half of the quarters Alabama has played, they've pitched shutouts over half of the quarters they've played this season. No one has scored against them at all. And the majority of time when someone did, it was seven or three. Uh, they've really only given up multiple scores in one quarter a couple of times uh, this season. So overall, they've been really good. But when they're good, good, it looks like vintage Saban to me. I mean, in terms of vintage Saban defense, 2011, 2016, uh, you know, all the years in which the defense was just outstanding. Man, they're, the pass rush, Turner and Braswell, Dallas Turner and Chris Braswell. Uh, and we'll go into this dur during the show, maybe not, maybe not this, this segment, but Dallas Turner and Chris Braswell together, if you combine their numbers together, it's ridiculous. It's Will Anderson. It's Will Anderson in 2021. When you combine their numbers together and you're like, well, that's dumb. Why are you combining their numbers together? Well, because the fact of the matter is most of the time, only one of them is on the field. We don't play a ton of football with both of them on the field. We do. It happens. But it's sort of like rare. I don't even know what the average is. My guess is less than 10 snaps a game. I mean, it, it would be like that little. Most of the time, almost all the time, it's one or the other. That's why you combine the numbers, because really you're getting all the production out of that one spot. They just sub out and keep each other fresh. But the production from that sole outside linebacker spot in nickel is absolutely ridiculous, crazy elite. Well, and with the defense in general, one of the huge benefits of this group compared to previous groups, like think back to the start of the Ole Miss game. You know, they give up a touchdown. Uh, it was fairly, it seemed fairly easy. Uh, you look at Tennessee, the fact they give up multiple scores, it seemed pretty easy. Uh, past defenses in recent years, you know, Ole Miss uh, in, in Oxford, you know, a few years ago, 2020, I believe, uh, LSU last year, really not LSU, Tennessee last year, excuse me, uh, where it's just like it's going to be one of those games where it's going to be a 52-49, a type of, of final score, and it's going to be back and forth, and the defense isn't really going to be able to do anything here. This year, they've responded extremely well despite the fact that they faced some early adversity 
And I think Tennessee offensively threw some different things at Alabama's defense early, maybe some things they weren't expecting. Like, we, we what do we talk about all week? Hey, this isn't the offense from last year. They're not going to spread you out and throw the football a ton. They're going to try to hammer the football right at you. Alabama's pretty good at, at stopping the inside run, especially. Uh, you know, you do need to worry about Milton's legs, which that certainly proved to be the case. But, you know, Tennessee came out and they were throwing the football around. And one matchup that I was concerned about going in, and I talked about it a lot, was even if Malachi Moore is healthy at star, going against Squirrel White and the fact that he's a very elusive, shifty, quick-footed uh, you know, slot receiver, that's really not Malachi's game. Malachi, from a, a star perspective, being able to play the run, certainly you know, you thought he would have a big impact and his presence would be felt. But him in coverage, if that, to me, that was the most exploitable matchup that Tennessee had anywhere, and that even includes what they're comfortable with on the inside run game because I, I felt confident in Alabama's run defense. But Squirrel White was someone that concerned me, and early on, they were hammering him the football. It wasn't just uh, Malachi Moore in coverage there either, but he was you know, certainly a part of that, and he did struggle a little bit at times. You also had a, a situation where Chris Braswell was covering him down the field. That's never what you want to do uh, or see happen, but give Alabama credit. They make some adjustments, and they start playing the quality of football that you expect from this Alabama defense, and that's that's a sign of a good defense, in my opinion, or an elite defense, in my opinion. In today's college football, you're at a lot of natural disadvantages defensively. When you have an elite offense going against an elite defense, the elite offense is going to prevail nine times out of ten, in my opinion. But what makes a great defense or an elite defense is when you find yourself in those scenarios, sometimes it's just – making adjustments and getting those one or two key stops that you've got to have. Sometimes it's making the adjustments and you're playing a good offense. And I don't think Tennessee offensively is elite or anything like that. Ole Miss was closer to that. Uh, and so, you know, I thought the fact that they were able to bounce back against them and really limit what they did offensively, I was impressed from that standpoint. But just, you know, the fact that you're able to overcome and start playing great football and, and get those key stops that you need to. And in Alabama's case on Saturday, completely shutting out the Tennessee offense in the second half. I mean, Jimmy, that's big to me. Yeah, you know, affecting the quarterback, I think, you know, in, in the first half, Alabama didn't really affect Joe Milton. There were no sna- no sacks in the first half. Didn't really harass him and sort of allowed him free reign back there. And uh, he had a big half. Same half, things flipped. Um, Alabama was affecting Milton quite a bit in the pass rush and they were not even close to effective as they were in the first half. One thing I thought pregame that I said uh, that, that did prove correct, I felt like the run games would sort of cancel each other out, that Tennessee wouldn't have a ton of success on the ground, and they didn't. They had some, but not a ton, and Alabama wouldn't have much or a ton of success on the ground. I was half right. <laughs> in the first half, Alabama was abysmal on the ground, but in the second half, Alabama did actually have a lot of success. Uh, and it helped helped them win the game. And that extent, I was a little bit wrong. But one thing I was right about, I felt that that the quarterbacks would decide the game, that at the end of the game, we would see that, hey, whichever quarterback makes plays, uh, you know, whoever makes the most plays, that's the team that's going to win the game. And it did play out that way in the sense that in the first half, Joe Milton clearly outperformed Jalen Milrow, and Tennessee was winning substantially. But in the second half, Jalen Milrow outperformed Joe Milton and won the game. Uh, and, and so that ended up being right. The, the, the better quarterback, and in this case, it, it is Jalen Milrow, uh, won the game. 
I would just say, Clint, the defense had a ton to do with it, where the defense finally was affecting Milton in the second half, and he just couldn't put together a, another half of football when he had to be super concerned about the pass rush. And, of course, the biggest play of the game, what finally separated the two, the two teams uh, substantially was, of course, the Braswell sack with the Jihad Campbell scoop and score. Biggest play of the game. Obviously, you're affecting the quarterback when you're when you're sacking him and the ball's coming out. So great job of adjusting by the Alabama coaches. But in the end, as we talked about early in the show, Clint, uh, it's about execution. And boy, Alabama really executed really well defensively in the second half. Yeah, I was really impressed with the adjustment to, you know, early on going the three man fronts and then switching to the four man fronts, I thought was very beneficial. Uh, it's Nick Saban alluded to in his post-game press conference. It certainly aided the pass rush. Uh, it aided the run game uh, or the the run defense. Um, and so, you know, uh, you, you like that adjustment. You like the fact that, you know, when you look at Jihad Campbell, and, and I talked about this on Thursday night, Todd, going into the game. This, with what you thought Tennessee was going to do, which was a little bit different compared to what we were expecting what they actually ended up doing was different than what we were expecting but based off what we thought Tennessee was going to do what they had been up to that point offensively I thought it was the perfect matchup for Tresman Marshall and I thought you know the fact that he was trending towards playing I thought stopping the inside run the fact that he's going to be able to provide some you know complimentary pass rushes and off-ball blitzer you know this the way that this Tennessee def- or uh, offense likes to spread you out defensively uh, the way that they attacked Alabama last year, you know, Marshall could have been a guy that they could have exploited with last year's group, but I wasn't sure that you could really exploit his weaknesses and coverage with the way that they were playing football or up to this point. Uh, he didn't end up playing in this game at all due to a rib injury, and it ended up exclusively being Jahad Campbell. Now, I wasn't overly concerned about that uh, as far as, you know, oh, they're in big trouble if Trez Marshall can't play. Campbell has certainly been good enough. I just thought that the matchup, based off of where things were trending, fit Marshall's skill set a lot more than Campbell's. Well, I will say, it actually ended up being beneficial that Campbell was the guy who was out there in some of those situations with the way that Tennessee actually played this football game. And they were doing some things early to try to open up the inside run later. Like, that was pretty blatant, in my opinion. Doing a lot of off-tackle stuff. They were getting the quarterback you know, on the move, they were attacking the sidelines. They were trying to soften up the middle of the field as much as they possibly could. I just don't think Alabama ever gave up enough, uh, you know, consistently where Tennessee felt comfortable being able to do that. But, you know, the, I will say, Jihad Campbell played a heck of a game, and and he's been a huge impact player. It's not as – just because you have 14 tackles doesn't mean you play great football. Uh, there are a lot of times where you rack up tackles, and the reason being is because the opposing offense is is targeting you. They they're going right at you a bunch, and you're making tackles, but you're giving up a lot. Uh, and against you know Ole Miss, um, you know Jahad Campbell has played good football. He's also had some issues where he struggled, but on Saturday, I think it was his best performance in an Alabama uniform up to this point. I tell you, I tell you, who that guy is. To me, Jihad is he is a 2023 version of a Rolando McLean or Dante Hightower who Alabama had early in the Saban era. In the sense, to me, Clint, he's such a physical presence inside that really Alabama's been missing to some degree. Where you had the undersized Henry Toa Toa 
the former high school defensive back, Christian Harris. You know, guys like that have been sort of manning that inside spot. They're good players. That's why they're in the NFL right now. They're good. But Alabama's been sort of missing a presence inside. But now throw in the fact, Clint, that he's got a background as a pass rusher. So he's a guy that quintessentially you could line up inside on first and second down and then on third down put him on the edge. I mean, he he's that kind of guy. And who who fits that description? Reggie Ragland to a degree, but even more so in my mind, Dante Hightower, who basically did that for the Patriots, uh, you know, and did it for Alabama beforehand. Uh, just such a rare player, such a rare linebacker that can do it all. And that's what I see in Campbell. The fact that he's doing it as such a young player where, you know, he didn't play a whole lot as a freshman. Uh, but but now as a sophomore, he's a what I would call a part-time starter. He's been rotating in and out all year. Had to play the whole game with Trez Marshall out. Uh, what a fantastic football player. But Trez is good too. Deontay Lawson is obviously good. And as we've said consistently all year long, Clint, one of the one of the, the best traits this team has, or one of the things you got to really uh, stand and applaud for, is the coaching as far as inside linebackers. I know Robert Ball is going to get a ton of credit, which he deserves because he is the inside linebacker coach. But there's also no question that Kevin Steele is helping out at that position quite a bit. And uh, so I think it's a joint production of Bala and Steele. And even a couple of Alabama analysts have an inside linebacker background. But it's just a very well-coached spot. But Jihad Campbell, I'm not sure how much coaching he needs, dude. I, I think I think you just kind of hit the on button and just sit back and watch that guy. Yeah, it and I'll be curious to see how they attack the position moving forward because, you know, it, it's really felt like even when fans weren't as high on Trez Marshall, it really felt like this coaching staff has been, and particularly Nick Saban. You know, he, he's taken some time out and really praised his play, and I do think he played a huge part when Deontay Lawson was not only sidelined but also limited. Uh, you know, when he first came back, I don't think he was 100% healthy. I thought Trez Marshall really aided uh, you know, you had Malachi Moore miss uh, last week's game against Arkansas, and, you know, Trez Marshall ends up, you know, the more communicators, effective communicators who are confident what they're doing, you don't always, as a defender, now granted, there's something to be said about knowing who to go to when you, or you're confused about something, uh, but when you're on the field and you're closer to Trez Marshall and you don't know what to do, it's a lot easier than, you know, having to look to the other side at the other linebacker and saying, Hey, what am I supposed to do? It's like, you just asked Trez and you feel confident that he'll get you on the same page. Same thing with Malachi Moore, uh, you know, and so having him out there, he's played a huge role. Jihad Campbell certainly has played phenomenal football. And I think that, you know, from one side, how do you take that guy off the field? Because he's getting better every week. He's, playing at such an elite level in so many different ways and what makes him different in my opinion from a Dante Hightower or a Rolanda McLean he does have some some similarities I don't think he has the same thumper tackle to tackle uh you know game uh but from an athleticism standpoint and what he can do he's got some range I mean that tackle where he he uh tackled the guy on third down to make it fourth down the range that he showed on that play is something there there aren't many linebackers out there who's got that kind of range. He didn't have the closing burst or speed of a Reuben Foster or, you know, maybe a Rashawn Evans, but from a range, you know, he looked comfortable, very fluid, dropping back in coverage, flipping his hips, 
and was able to make get over there and make the play. And I've seen someone point out this comment. I don't remember who, or I would give you credit. It was someone on the message board. But I don't think Trez Marshall makes that play, if I'm speaking candidly. I don't think he has the athleticism to make that play. But he also offers a lot. So I'll, I'll be curious to see how that position is tackled moving forward once Trez Marshall is able to come back, which you would think, you know, he wasn't able to give it a go, um, you know, with the ribs on Saturday. But you got the bye week coming up this week. You got a couple of weeks to get him more healthy. I would expect him to be available against LSU more than likely. And if that's the case, I will say against LSU style offensively, Jahad Campbell seems like the better fit. Well, you're going to have to spy Jaden Daniels to some extent, and you need a highly athletic linebacker to do that. It'll be interesting to me just to see, I mean, who they select to be the spy. I don't see how you play them without a spy. So, I think that's one of the most interesting things to see in the first quarter, first series against LSU is, okay, who is it Lawson? Which is fine, although I don't know that the Mike is the right guy to do it. I mean, you know, in the sense the Mike's got a lot of responsibilities out there. I think ideally it's the Will, and it could be Trez or Job. Which one of those two is better suited? I, I think they both are to a degree, but I'm with you, Clyde. I hate the idea of taking Job Campbell off the field. I just hate it. But Trez is good. He, he He's very good. And he knows exactly what to do. And the spy, it's not an easy position. It sounds easy. It sounds like it's one-on-one. It's it's not. You got to know, when do I tack forward? When do I tack at all? When do I go backwards? When If he's going back to pass, do I drop back? I mean, you, you've got a lot of decisions to make out there when you're a spy. It's not, it's not an easy position to make, uh, to play. And I think maybe Maybe Trez's experience might be helpful or Deontay's experience. On the other hand, Jihad is so rangy and long and tall. You know, Jihad can attack forward, get his hands up, and, and kind of clog up passing lanes, you know, and then then uh, then Jaden Daniels uh, might not be as effective. And, of course, I imagine really an answer to all this, Clint, is they're going to go back and watch film of all LSU's games and see what Jaden Daniels did and all the other LSU games and see, okay, who did they spy him with and what worked and what didn't. I mean, they're, they're going to do all that work you know, prior to kickoff against LSU. But uh, I do think that uh, regardless of which inside linebackers Alabama has on the field, it's going to be a good player. That's the thing as a fan. Don't get too frustrated about if you don't see 30 out there, hey, 32 and 17, they're good players. Even 40 is a good player uh, this year. Uh, I I just don't doubt. You know, I know Alabama fans, they get frustrated that younger running backs aren't playing. I, I get that, but also think this. Alabama's got a good running back on the field. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me which one it is. Jason Rondell, pretty good, pretty good proven veteran football players. Inside linebacker, Alabama's even better. Those are some good players out there. But you've got to give Alabama credit because pretty much every step of the way, when they've had guys miss, they've had players step up. And that, I think, is way more important than we realize. Uh, you know, you've had the off-ball linebacker, you know, Deontay Lawson misses. You see more Jahad Campbell. You see Trez Marshall step up. You've seen Kendrick Blackshire step up. You lose Malachi Moore. You make some shifts. Terry and Arnold holds up at star, uh, you know, but you know, Terry and Arnold goes down. Malachi Moore returns against Tennessee. Arnold goes down. Now Trey Amos is out there playing perimeter corner, which is what he's been doing with Malachi Moore sideline too. And I will say he has not been perfect this year, but this was a really good game of his. I thought he played pretty darn well. 
And that's just that's so encouraging because losing a player that we had all been hyping up, I mean, Malachi Moore, heart and soul of the defense, he's all over the place. He's very involved. He's playing great football, goes down. Oh, no, what's Alabama going to do? Well, they end up being fine. Are they great at the, with the replacements and the shifts? No, not necessarily, but they're fine. You look at, you know, uh, Tyrion Arnold, who we've been talking about being a projected first-round draft pick potentially for Alabama with the way that he's been playing. He goes down on Saturday. Oh, no, what's Alabama going to do? You know, you had the the guys you could kind of leave on islands out there on the perimeter. Now you've got a backup coming in. Trey Amos holds up extremely well. The one that we need to be talking about the most, in my opinion, is Jaden Roberts. I mean, at this point, he's not even a replacement player. He is the starter because he's played so well. And I was very reluctant after his first start to hand him that role because it's like he was third on the depth chart for a reason. And so you got to stack good performances. You can't play just, you know, when I get it, was, it was against Texas A&M. That's great. We're very good defensive front. He held up. He was not perfect. He wasn't great, but he was reliable enough. He moved some guys in the run game. He held up decently in pass protection. And you're like, that's great. But he didn't have a phenomenal performance where you're like, he's taking the job. But he's stacking good performances. And he gets hurt himself on Saturday, and he battles through it. And I don't think we're talking about that enough. And so just the guys that have been stepping up, this is a a deeper football team than we realize. Yeah, the emergence of Jaden Roberts is a big story for this offense just because, I mean, to me, what, what interests me is, Obviously, we preview the season incessantly. You know, we start in January. <laughs> we start in January previewing the next season, and we talk about all spring and summer. And I'm always fascinated when someone that we never talked about ends up playing an, a, a big key role on the team. And this year, that's Jane Roberts because there wasn't a lot of talk about him in, in the Tim spring Keenan and summer. And maybe that's on us a little bit for, uh, but it's also you know, hey, he wasn't really in the plans, um, and and. You know, to some extent, I know people say he's third. That's a little bit semantics with me. I mean, it, it is true he was third because he's the third guy to play right guard this year because uh, Dalcourt did it first and then Tiford did it and then Jade played. Well, maybe if the coaches made a mistake, it was not having him ahead of, of Ferguson. Well, let's remember Ferguson has a bad ankle sprain, uh, the, the, the dreaded high ankle sprain. He hurt at the same time Lawson hurt his. Uh, but Lawson didn't have the high ankle sprain. He was able to come back fairly quickly. Uh, Ferg, it's not been as quickly. Uh, now, is Jaden Roberts a better player than Terrence Ferguson? I guess so. I guess. I, I can't say it emphatically because we haven't seen Ferguson since the injury, you know, come back healthy. Uh, but he is starting ahead of Dalcourt, who clearly is healthy because when Roberts got banged up, Dalcourt did come in. And then as soon as Roberts was able to play again, Dalcourt came out. Uh, that's just kind of a tricky veteran situation. It's one of those things I think that will uh, frustrate fans forever. But when you're building a football team uh, in the preseason, coaches get a uh, very veteran conscious. That's who they trust. That's who they depend on. Uh, they know they know the playbook. Uh, they know they can help coach the other players. And, and they wanted Dalcourt back. I, I think Dalcourt was going to be given every every single opportunity because – they wanted him back, so he came back, and uh, and he was given every opportunity. But then when he got hurt, and they put in the other guy, and if the other guy grades better and plays better, now they can go to him and say, "Hey, the other guy's just the other guy's just playing better. We got to stick with the guy who's playing better." But you know, I you know I I get the feeling uh, it, it's it's way too premature to have this conversation. But let's just say 
I won't be surprised if we're having the same conversation and doing this all over again next year with another interior lineman that's likely going to be asked back and who will start. And, and, and the fans are already complaining we're not even to next season. So I, I can sort of see this coming like a like a, a, a train with its light on at the end of the dark tunnel. All right. Just just say Seth McLaughlin next time. Jeez. <laughs> I thought it was kind of obvious. <laughs> no, I'm just oh, kidding. It was obvious. You're... Can't you see that coming? Like, Seth, yes. we, need, we need you back. And then when it's we need you back, how do you bring him back and then say, well, they, you know, we're playing the younger kid? Yeah. I mean, and granted, it, you're 100% correct. And what's helped, you know, what's interesting about Darian Dalcourt is he's now been replaced through injury potentially three times. Because in 2021, he goes down, Seth McLaughlin comes in. McLaughlin plays better, uh, you know, Dow court. And some of that is Dow court also might've never gotten back to being a hundred percent that year. I, I especially think that's the case in 2022, but you saw that again, uh, last year where they had a, a center battle and guess who won? It was Dow court yet again. And he's the starter. He's the more veteran player. He goes down with an injury again. McLaughlin comes in. He never really gives up the job back to Dow court. Then they moved Dow court to right guard. He's the starter. Doesn't play necessarily great. Gets banged up. Gives another guy an opportunity. That guy plays well. Now, Dalcourt, now granted, he could have been an emergency option, right guard. Like they might have, this might be the, he still might be considered the starter. And it's just like, hey, we only play, he's still not fully healthy enough. He's not back to where we feel confident that he can get the job done at a level that he needs to. But if, you know, if we got to work to our fourth guy on this depth chart, then we might as well go back to Dow Court because Dow Court at 85% or 90% is better than what we're going to have as the fourth string right guard. That could be the scenario. But it did kind of feel, it's also possible, that Saturday through Jaden Roberts getting banged up for a short period, uh, it revealed that Darian Dow Court is healthy enough to play, and it's just Roberts is playing over him because he's the more effective option. So I don't really know. Uh, I would more so lean towards that scenario, but we don't know definitively one way or the other. But, you know, if McLaughlin, you know, he's he's dealt with some injuries at, at various points in his career. He might have been dealing or has been dealing with some this year. But uh, I do think that he is a guy who will be asked to come back. And who are the other options going to be? I will say, if if he can get more comfortable in the role, Terrence Ferguson just looks like a center to me. Uh, I, I don't know if that wouldn't be in the case in 2024 or not. I mean, it's way too Let's get through 2023, but yeah, you're you're 100% right on, on that point. And the offensive line in general, it it struggled a little bit at times, but I thought it started playing pretty well. I thought you were once again Tyler Booker and J.C. Latham playing excellent football. I mean, you just you turn on the tape and you go to look, and you're like, yeah, they're definitely not a problem. I mean, it doesn't mean they can't get beat on the occasional snap, but what you ask of a lead offensive line play. You're certainly getting it out of those two guys. Uh, McLaughlin um, gets overpowered a little bit, a little bit too much. Uh, right guard, I just, you know, Jaden Roberts, I've been impressed with him, man. And it's nothing that he's doing that's spectacular, but he's moving guys in the run game. He's working well in unison uh, with, you know, between Seth McLaughlin and J.C. Latham. I think that's important. And he's holding up pretty darn well in pass protection. Like, I'm not looking at him being a liability, and that's just that's shocking to me based off of where he was at on the depth chart. And if you've got to get to that guy, you're going to have a problem. He has not been a problem. And so give him a ton of credit for what he's been able to do. 
And, you know, uh, I think that right now, probably Terrence Ferguson is the better left guard. Like, if you have to have a left guard, that's going to be your guy it, when he's healthy. Uh, but if the right, right guard, I don't think Ferguson's as good on the right side. So if you need a right guard right now, even when Ferguson gets back and he's healthy, I still think it could be Roberts because on that right side, he looks a lot more comfortable. I expect it to be Roberts. I think it's not like, you know, when I've watched him and I've watched him quite a bit, you know, just focus on him. It's not like he's, he's playing at an all-star level, but he doesn't seem to have breakdowns. You don't see him get pancaked. You kind of see him generally moving people in the run game. I think he might be a little better against the run than the in, in the pass protection. But uh, he's doing remarkably well for a guy who hasn't played. He seems to bring some level of fire to the group. You know, I think some fans have a tendency to kind of look at the offensive line like it's one guy, like it's like let's like just, hey, it's how the line is performing as a unit while forgetting that it's actually five guys in the unit. And just because the unit has breakdowns does not mean all five aren't, aren't, aren't doing their job. I think you make a great point about Tyler Booker and J.C. Latham. When you watch all five of the linemen, they're not just good, Clint. They're, they're playing at an all-star level and, and have all season long. They, they were never close to being the issue, Booker and Latham. And uh, when I see them on postseason all-star teams, whether you're talking about all SEC or even all American teams, and Latham has taken the first round. Uh, I'm not. I think he's played like a first round pick. He doesn't get beat much, if if at all. Uh, and and Booker might even be better than Latham. To be honest. I mean, you know, Booker's really good. He's not perfect, but you know, who's gonna be? Um, it's the other three spots that have been more problematic. But notice, I say problematic. It's not a problem. It's problematic. It's a, the snaps have been bad. Seth does get overwhelmed at times by big-time, large SEC athletes that he doesn't hold up to it all the time. Uh, Dalcourt is fine, but that's about as far as you can say, right? He's fine. Uh, and then left tackle's been a bigger issue. Uh, no no doubt left tackle's the single biggest issue up front. I noticed uh, – have, you, have you done your, your snap count thing? I, I don't – did Pritchett play Saturday? No. Do you know? No, I don't believe so. I didn't see him at all. And I don't think he played. Uh, I, I think that was the uh, coming out of the Arkansas thing. It was a, we got to go with Proctor's just more consistent than Pritchett. And, uh, hey, look, Proctor's going to be better for this. I'm going to talk about it all offseason, and it may, I may end up with, with egg on my face over it. If so, that's fine, Clint. But one of the themes that I, I've got of our long upcoming offseason of me and you previewing next year's team I'm going to be saying that whole offseason, y'all won't recognize Caden Proctor. Y'all won't even recognize him next fall. He'll be a completely different player, uh, completely more effective, in better shape. Uh, I, I will even go so far as to say he'll probably be an all-star performer, uh, but that's next year. This year, he's still in the deep end of the pool with no, uh, with no flotation devices. Well, I feel like Saturday's game – was as close to what I was expecting out of Caden Proctor going into the year as I've seen, where I thought he was a good run blocker. And when you put yourself in good situations, especially in the second half, where you're able to move the football consistently and you're 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 ahead of the sticks, it plays to his strengths more. Uh, when he's not asked to be a drop back, you know, straight pass protector, 
handle SEC speed. We thought that could be a concern for him. It's certainly a concern for Elijah Pritchett as well. But, you know, he gave up, um, you know, a, a few pressures. He gave up a couple of sacks. Like I said, one of those sacks could have been avoided by Milrow. Technically still on Proctor, but based off of where he had the defender, uh, if Milrow steps up into the pocket just a little bit more, he could, you know, I think Proctor could have worked him around and, and that would have been one less sack. But he got beat on that play. He got beat on another play. So he he's still getting beaten pass protection. He's still a problem in that area. Uh, is it as blatant? Is the pressure, the constant leakage as big of a problem as it was in previous games? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, I think he's getting better on that front. But the most noticeable improvement I saw from him is I saw a very good run blocker on Saturday. And so if you can at least get that, and now you've got, you know, him and Booker really doing some good things in the run game on the left side. You've got J.C. Latham doing some good things on the right side. And with Roberts, I'll tell you straight up, man, um, McLaughlin, Dowcourt, uh, even Ferguson a little bit when he's played, there are snaps where you watch and, and he's driven into the backfield. Either any of those guys have been driven into the backfield. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe somebody can point something out but I, I very rarely see Roberts getting driven back into the backfield uh you know and so I th- and again when he's run blocking uh so he never really gets overpowered didn't always win his rep sometimes he's working forward too much and a defender will use his momentum against him but he's always moving forward and you know and I think that's you know so between those two guys doing good things run blocking on top of what you're getting you know Seth McLaughlin hadn't been great on that front but, you know, four out of five, you can really start to get some things going with your run game more consistently. And with the fact that you're adding the design quarterback runs that's going to aid your standard run game, it, that should help. And, and I've continued to say it all season. Uh, Alabama has played behind the sticks way too much, way too often. And on Saturday, especially in the second half, you saw that start to get fixed. And I think this is the style of offense that Alabama wants to be where they're staying ahead. It takes pressure off of Milrow. It takes pressure off the passing game. Your play action pass stuff works a lot better when you're not in those obvious passing situations. The fact that you're you're throwing screens, you're throwing jets, all these different elements, it's certainly going to be beneficial to everybody, but the offensive line, it's got to do its job, you know, run blocking to help itself as far as its own pass protection. And I feel like I saw that a little bit more on Saturday. Yeah, I know people are getting tired of me saying it, but I'll just say it one, one, finish up with just saying this one last time. There is one path for Alabama to get to Atlanta. There's one trail. There's, there's not others. One option, run the football. That's it. You're, you're not going to get to Atlanta solely on the redshirt sophomore quarterback's right arm. You've got this, this team has got to run the ball to have a lot of success. And we did see that in this. What happened the first half? Couldn't run the ball. Offense was awful. Second half, could run the ball. You look like a playoff team. And, hey, it's not just fingers that can be snapped. It's not a button that you can press. It's not a lever that you pull. It's not that easy. But the path to Atlanta and even beyond is running the football with this team. And uh, and we'll find out over these last four games if it's uh, if they can pull it off. Absolutely. And once again, we already covered it a little bit, but I loved the Kendrick Law Jets, you know, getting him in motion, using that speed. He's an elusive runner. He seems to have good field vision. 
maybe his kind of those manufactured touches that you get for him. And maybe it doesn't come as a running back because you like what you got in your backfield. So you don't line him up back there. You don't hand him the football, but you get him involved in that way and allow him to kind of take over more of a running back role where he gets to play with a little bit of physicality. He shows some good vision. He makes some guys miss. Uh, I love that wrinkle. And he won't be the only one running these jets, I bet. I mean, you're going to see other guys run it. It's not going to be, you know, predominantly a, a law thing, but he was the one that got the two touches on Saturday on that front. He did good things with both of them. They've tried to do a little bit of that in some previous games. I think against Ole Miss, they tried that down there near the goal line with little success and fans weren't happy with it. Um, but, you know, it's it, to me, that's a very interesting wrinkle. And it's a very deep wide receiver room. Jermaine Burton and Isaiah Bond are going to be your two fixtures. I mean, those guys pretty much each and every week, they're going to see the most snaps. They're going to see a, a lion's share of the targets. The wide receiver three role, has been more and I say wide receiver just the number three role uh you know because it can be Amari Nye Black as well but it, it's more of a revolving door where it's more week to week player to player and it could be matchup based it could just be the fact that they say hey you know we want to keep as many of these guys happy as possible it's been a little while since we've seen some Kendrick Law let's get him involved this week next week it's Kobe Prentice next week it's you know, and, and Malik Benson, he's playing a lot of snaps, but his role has been pretty consistent. I mean, he's going to get one or two targets every week. Uh, the blocking um, on some plays leaves a lot to be desired, but his role has been fairly consistent. But as far as that number three, you've seen a tight end, uh, you know, a, a big body receiver, essentially, and Nye Black. Uh, you've seen Kobe Prentice. You've seen, uh, you know, uh, Kendrick Law now. You've seen a lot of different guys handle that role and look pretty good doing it, but the two fixtures at that position each and every week is going to be Bond and it's going to be Burton. They, they're both dependable. That's the thing, though. What were Bond, the big change to me, Bond last year to this year, Clint, freshman to sophomore, he's just dependable. Bond's dependable. He gets open, he catches the ball, he makes the play. Last year as a freshman, I think things moved a little too fast for him, maybe a little overwhelming, but Bond has turned into one heck of a rock. I think, you know, it'd be great if you had Smitty, right? But if you don't, hey, at wide receiver, a good situation is to have a Batman Robin. That's sort of what this year's turned into to me. Jermaine Burton as Batman, Isaiah Bond as Robin, you know, and everybody else is just the little, you know, Commissioner Gordon and all the uh, Gotham cops try, trying to help here and there. But uh, but no doubt, Burton's Batman, Bond is Robin, and uh, it's working. Uh, and again, I, I think Jermaine Burton in particular, uh, his development from, well, he's clearly a good player. I mean, we, we knew that last, he's clearly good, but boy, he's next leveled up. I think as a senior, you, you can tell he, he knows the NFL's right around the corner and he's playing like a pro football player, honestly. Yeah. And, and hell was the other one. I knew there was somebody I was forgetting as far as stepping up and, and being kind of a big play player on a uh singular basis in one one particular game and then kind of you know since then he's kind of disappeared a little bit but you know every week it's like that number three role just you know and, and that doesn't mean that they finish with you know i mean he led the team in receiving guards that week but he only had two catches so it was explosive plays didn't see as many targets as some other guys but he was had a big game and then you rotate to the next one but as we've mentioned it's burton it's bond i love what burton's bringing to the table uh, some his his personality uh, is rubbing some fans the wrong way. It's certainly rubbing opposing teams' fan bases the wrong way. 
but it's you know even some Alabama fans don't like it. But I will say that you it's tough to argue against the results, and the results are he he's he's playing with confidence, he's playing with swagger, and it's working for him, and it's working for this Alabama offense. And so getting that out of him and him playing with that edge, uh, it's giving you know the offense a little bit of an identity. And you know I give him a lot of credit for that. You've got a lot of options. There have been some guys that have disappeared. Really, I mean, Ja'Cory Brooks. I know everybody's shocked by that. But it's just it is what it is at this point. Um, a lot of talent in that room can't keep everybody in the rotation, can't keep everybody happy. But I think they're doing their best to. But I, I like the fact that they're limiting, they're they're giving Jalen Milrow two constants, and that is Burton and Bond. And then from there, you still got to have chemistry with all these different guys. But on a week in week out basis, he's got at least two guys, and you can probably throw Nye Black in there as well where you you trust them, you know you can go to them, and then you've got other weapons and stuff that you can get involved in as well, but you've got your two constants at wide receiver. I think that's big, been big for Milrow, and I think it's been big for the passing game. So, Jimmy, do you have anything else before we hop out of here? No, no. I'll just say about Burton, uh, what's the uh, line from a few good men that I'm uh, borrowing this from about Burton's behaviors? You know, how, how dare you uh, sleep under the – blanket of the production that Burton provides and then question the manner in which he provides it. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. I, I, we did get that written up into a, a, a graphic and just put that quote with Jermaine Burton's picture on it and, and post that all over social media. Cause that is, you're, you're hundred percent right. And it, it could have get Alabama into some trouble at some point as far as maybe him drawing a penalty. Yeah. But I mean, I think the the good is far outweighing the bad as far as risk reward uh, on that behavior. So, you know, it is what it is. Appreciate you hopping on here with me as always. We'll be doing next week. It won't be much for game reaction. It'll be just a straight LSU preview. And by that point, we would have talked about this stuff for a week pretty much. And we're going to be looking more for the rest of the season. It's not just LSU, but we're going to be doing a lot of LSU. I mean, it's a two-week LSU fest. So we'll be diving into them, and then next week um, on Monday, we'll be previewing the heck out of that game. So I'm looking forward to it, Jimmy. As always, I appreciate you hopping on here with me, brother. I uh, can't wait to break down LSU. We got the uh, Heisman Trophy favorite coming in. I think uh, Jaden Daniels will be leading all the Heisman polls uh, by game time. So that'll be one more fascinating storyline. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that Jalen Milrose won the Heisman? Uh, no, I'm saying that Jaden Daniels, Jaden Daniels will be leading. I, I, I heard what you said, but yeah. last time LSU brought a, a a Heisman favorite into, well, I guess Joe Burrow, maybe. Okay, maybe there was a, two two Heisman guys ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Burrow, Burrow. yeah. yeah they bring they bring in old old Lenny, and then you know everybody's kind of sleeping on Derrick Henry, and the next thing you know, Henry, you know, it's Alabama's running back that's running I'll towards the Heisman. Milrow's not going to win the Heisman this year. Of course, he's not, but. Hey, you know, you tell Jalen Milrow, hey, you outperformed Jaden Daniels tonight. You're on the short list in 2024. You'll go into 2024 on the list. If Alabama wins and Milrow plays better than that guy, it'll be on the short list in 2024. And, you know, I will say, uh, Brian Denny Stadium and the the two defenses, Milrow should have some some complimentary stuff going on that really helps him in that game. Uh, so, you know, I wouldn't be overly shocked if he ended up having a relatively good performance given this, some of the circumstances, but it is certainly interesting. 
I, I know, man, we're going to have so much fun covering this game this week. I can't wait. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening in, and we will talk to you guys soon. Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit KS Gambling Help com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050-424-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE. NY or text Hope NY in New York.